the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Hello and welcome to this Farm Advisory Service podcast. My name is Malcolm MacDonald and this is the, the third podcast in the Northeast Organic Discussion Group series. Um, in this podcast, I'm joined on the line by David Uni, who is a now retired SEC uh, consultant advisor, had a number of roles in the organization over his time with us, but uh, most uh, or laterally, he was a senior organic farming consultant in the, in the organization, and uh, he has also lectured on the organic MSc course. Um, so thanks for joining us, David. Um, thanks for coming, along, coming on the line and giving up your time to speak. Um, do you want to describe your your kind of your background just briefly there? I know I've touched on it, but maybe you can say a bit more. Okay, Malcolm. Um, well, I studied agriculture at, at Aberdeen University, and then I did an MSc in tropical agriculture, actually, at Reading University. And then I worked overseas for a couple of years before coming back to Aberdeen to join the, the college as a grassland advisor. And over time, I... Transferred into organic farming, um, as because there was a, an increasing interest in organic farming during the 1980s and 90s, and that's how I ended up as a, a senior organic farming consultant, supporting the area advisors throughout Scotland and also further afield. We, I was involved in uh, a number of European organic research projects and. Consultancies, consultancy projects, EU-funded consultancy projects in Romania and and Turkey. Okay, yeah, yeah. So very, very varied uh, geographically as well. Um, no, very interesting. Um, so to kind of go back, you said you started off as a, or you know, a lot of it was grassland-based stuff. So how did you then? What kind of was the the point when you started to move into organics? What kicked that off? Well, I've always had a an interest in legumes and forage legumes, clover in particular. Um, when I was at university, I, you know, and I discovered that clover could fix large amounts of nitrogen and transfer that to the, the companion grass growing with it. I thought to myself, why on earth do farmers use any nitrogen fertilizer at all? Yeah. And then after I graduated, I, I was working in Saudi Arabia on a, on a research farm for a couple of years. This was a, primarily a livestock uh, research farm, but I was the forage agronomist in, char in charge of providing uh, the forage for 120 dairy cows and about 800 uh, sheep. And our main forage crop was lucerne, which was an absolutely fantastic crop. We were producing, under irrigation of course, uh, something like, well, in, exper in experimental conditions, over 40 tonnes of dry matter per hectare per year, um, cutting the crop 12 or 13 times a year for zero grazing, that was. So, yeah. you know, that was fantastic, it seemed to me. When I, jo when I joined the college, uh, I sort of developed my interest in clover through doing field trials at our farm at Crabston in white clover and red clover. Okay. And we were doing a, a beef systems trial 
during the middle of the 1980s, comparing a nitrogen-based uh, beef system with a clover-based beef system. And at that time, there was growing interest in organic farming. And so uh, my boss at the time, Charlie Mackey, suggested that we convert the clover-based system to an organic system. Oh. And that's how um, we started farming organically at Crabston. First of all, on this small farmlet, and then we converted our upland unit at Crabston, which was about 60 hectares, uh, beef and sheep uh, unit. And then ultimately, round about to the year 2000, uh, the rest of Crabston was converted as well. And that included our dairy unit. So um, at that time, there was nobody else in SEC <coughs> providing advice on organic farming. So it fell on my shoulders to, to do that. Um, and it just sort of developed from there. Okay, okay. And so, so back then in the in the kind of eighties, was the organic was the organic industry or side of farming was there was there many people doing it? Was there any kind of subsidy support or incentives like there is now? Not, not really. Um, the people there were a small number of farmers farming organically, of course, and they were people who were really interested in the system and and were, were keen to do it whatever the, uh, the, the, um, the aid that was available. It was only around about 1994-95 that the Scottish office, as it was then, uh, introduced the organic aid scheme. And that saw an increase in the number of farmers interested in converting, of course. Yeah. But the, 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 the extent of development of organic farming in terms of the number of farmers converting is really dependent on two things. One is the relative profitability of conventional farming, non-organic farming, mm -hmm. um, and you know the converse of that is the, uh, the the availability of product premiums for organic products, and secondly is the availability of grant aid for conversion. Mm -hmm. And round about 1998, 97-98. The price of organic of the price sorry the price of conventional lambs went through the floor. It dropped through the floor, yeah. and at the same time, the Scottish Office introduced higher payments for conversion to organic farming. So during 1998, 99, 2000, we saw a huge explosion in interest from farmers in converting to organic, particularly hill farmers. And uh, that's when we saw the huge explosion in interest. And, uh, you know, I was doing 50, 60 meetings a year uh, discussing this with, with uh, farmers who were interested in converting. Yeah, that sounds, sounds very busy as well. But I suppose for the hill, the hill farmers, maybe when they're quite low input anyway, they maybe it was a more of a natural choice for some of them. Maybe it makes sense. But uh, yeah, so that had been a real kind of a really busy time for you back then with that kind of interest. Um, and and was there much of a premium back then, or has it has it fluctuated much the kind of premiums for? I mean, I know right now there's a bit of a premium on organic beef more than more than lamb. Uh, lamb, there's not much premium at all. What was it like kind of back then, and and even earlier too? Was there much of a difference in markets? Well, there were good premiums for uh, organic cereals, um, organic vegetables. Uh, there were decent premiums on organic lamb there, but crucially, 
there were there was virtually no premium on store lamb and store cattle, and that's why uh, around about two thousand and three, four, five, uh, when the all these hill farmers came to the end of their organic aid scheme contracts, uh, you know they they were producing only store lambs and they were getting no premium for them. So that's when we saw quite a number of them dropping out. Um, but, um, you know, there's been a continuing premium, I think, for organic cereals and organic uh, prime beef um, yeah. throughout this time. Around about uh, 2008, of course, we had the financial crash and, crash and the supermarkets, in their wisdom, decided to withdraw a lot of organic produce from the shelves. Um, so that was about the, the peak of the... the Area of organic farms in the in the, in the UK, I would say, um, and there's been a, a, a steady decline since then, I think. But strangely enough, uh, and, and, and obviously around about 2008, there was a drop in the the total uh, sales by value of organic food in the UK. But it's grown since then. So yeah. I think the situation now is that. Um, Although the number of organic farmers in Scotland and the area of organic far, farmed land has declined, the, the market has steadied. Um, so I think it's stabilised a little bit. Um, yeah, I think, I think it has. That's something I've been hearing as well. I think with an increasing awareness of you know climate climate change and factors like that, the organic food has got a good a good brand and a good story in that regard, which is really um. Uh, Really helping, I think, the the market for it too. So yes, yes, I'll, I think I'll see we'll we'll see that uh, um, continuing as well as 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 farmers are being encouraged to uh, to go zero carbon. You know. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, I think it'll be seen as one way, one one route anyway to to cut emissions up to up to a point. Um, certainly, certainly. Um. Just coming back to that kind of uh, the kind of nineties and early two thousands, that kind of growth in organic. Um, I talked to you before, and you talked about the demonstrator or demonstration farms. Can you talk, talk about your involvement in some of those demonstration farms a bit? Well, at that time, um, the Scottish government um, provided funding to SAC to support organic farmers, both through the conversion period and. Um, and subsequently as well. And I was responsible for, for running this um, program of, of support. And what it included was um, a, an organic helpline, which was widely publicized for organic for farmers, um, and a program of meetings and farm walks and publications, um, a lot of publications and so on. And you know, during that time, uh, well, between 1998 and 2010, SAC um, had almost 17,000 telephone inquiries. Uh, we put on 349 producer events, that's farm walks, seminars, and conferences, and over 300 advisory publications. I should. Emphasize yeah. it. I was not responsible for all of that. Uh, it was yeah. done 
through through our uh, network of specialist advisors and also the area advisors in the 23 or 24 area offices. But uh, part of those um, event programs that we had were a series of demonstration farms. We enlisted some cooperative uh, farmers who were uh, already organic or, or in the process of converting to organic. So we had demonstration farms uh, of different types, obviously, uh, a dairy farm in Wigtonshire, beef and sheep farm in, in um, Berwickshire, an arable farm in Perthshire, uh, a vegetable and mixed farm in just outside Dundee, and our own uh, Krebston farm as well. Uh, and we had a, an upland farm uh, at, at Blair Athol too. So we had three or four uh, farm walks on these farms each year, as well as many other uh, one-off events uh, for farmers too, in including one-day conferences uh, and many, many evening meetings. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So yeah, quite a full kind of program of uh, advisory events for uh, at that time, which um, probably no doubt it was a great help to a lot of people um, getting getting into organics and um, right, and finding a system that works for them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I, th I think um, what I always t obviously people are looking for support during this time because it's a major change in the system to yeah. go from using uh, fertilizers and pesticides and so on all that support to um, basically minimizing your inputs and, and trying to work with, with nature, if you like. So people are, were unsure of themselves. You could sense that when they came on the phone, or very often it was the farmer's wife who came on the phone, actually. Um, I like to think it was because they thought there was a dashing debonair person at the other end of the phone, but it was probably not. Um, so people were very unsure you know they're tempted farmers yeah. are tempted by the organic premiums that they hear are available they're yeah. tempted by the organic aid scheme payments but of course they're apprehensive about how to go about it from a technical point of view and uh, so that's why i always my approach to providing the support was was always to focus on the practicalities not to be evangelical. It wasn't SAC's job to be evangelical about organic farming. No. Focus no, no. on the practicalities, the, the, the financial uh, potential, if you like. Uh, and that's what we've, we uh, focused on in these meetings. Um, and I think that was appreciated by, by the farmers who came to these meetings. And, you know, they, they may have thought when they were originally thinking about organic farming that, this was all going to be airy fairy sandals and bearded stuff and so on. Uh, but, you know, when they came to the first meeting, uh, they realized that there was interesting practical stuff to learn as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, and on the practical side too, do you think, um, do you think you're seeing some organic practices moving into conventional now as well? I mean, I kind of think I've seen a, a bit of that in some regards, but is that that's something you see as well, do you think? Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Um, um, you know, particularly things like uh, clover. Uh, 
if you look back, uh, DEFRA does a, a survey of fertilizer practice on farms in the UK every year. And I think in 1983, the average application rate of nitrogen across farms in the UK was about 120, 125 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare. In, in 2019, 25 years later, it was about 55%, 55 kilograms. So there's yeah. been a huge drop in the use of uh, nitrogen fertilizer over that time. Now, partly that's probably because there are fewer stock, especially after the change in the CAP rules. But uh, partly it's also because people are more confident about using uh, or b basing their system on, on clover. Um, you know, so so that's certainly one thing that uh, um, that farmers have adopted, and other things like uh, you know forage herbs, uh, using fecal egg counts for making warming decisions, uh, this sort of thing. And on the on the arable side, you're seeing uh, uh, fleece being used to to protect the crop from in, in insect pests. And, uh, and, and this sort of thing. Winter, winter cover crops are becoming more more common as well. Yeah, yeah, of course. I suppose in some respects, with the the kind of the the range of chemicals becoming you know ever smaller, where due to you know you know regulations coming in, which is of course is fair enough. I suppose maybe um, even conventional farmers are have been kind of looking a bit further afield for uh, what we call cultural methods of control for some of these pests and that as well, which organic farmers have been doing for, for years anyway. Um, yeah, that, that, that's for sure. The, the, the other factor in this is supermarkets, actually, because they've been forcing the hand of, uh, of farmers a little bit and encouraging them to cut back on, on pesticide use, especially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, from a branding perspective and everything, yeah, yeah. Um, I just noticed one thing you kind of touched on was uh, herbs and stuff as well. The kind of kind of herbal leaves, as they're sometimes sometimes called, or, or multi-species swords. I've got a, a fair bit of a, a fair bit of interest recently. Is that something you looked into much when you were when you were working? Uh, I wouldn't say I was looking at multi-species swords. I was certainly look looking at um, forage herbs. Uh, specific swords of, of herbs um, but basically my you know I, I, I was of the opinion that you really needed to manage se uh, different types of swords separately okay. you, you know you, you would if, if you wanted to maximize production it would essentially be uh, ryegrass clover swords yeah, yeah. Uh, but forage herbs which we did a lot of work on particularly chicory and plantain were extremely useful as we found for uh, minimizing uh, parasite development in, in sheep um, so far as multi-species laser concerned, I know that's, this is very topical at the moment I suspect what what will happen over time with a multi-species lay is that you will get one or two or three or four species coming to dominate and a lot of the other uh, species will tend to, to die out and I think to get the benefit of uh, you know these specific species 
you need to have a lot of them in the in this ward. So uh, you know that's why I would always go for a you know for example if you're looking for a a, a forage herb species that that's going to restrict parasite development for sheep. You know, I, I would I would always suggest that you use chicory with a relatively high seed rate and a bit of clover. We found that perennial ryegrass was a bit too competitive against chicory, so you wouldn't include perennial ryegrass in that mixture. Um, so maybe a bit of timothy, possibly, but it would be largely uh, chicory and and clover. And for the bulk of your grassland area, it would be um, you know, a basic mixture of uh, ryegrass, perennial ryegrass, timothy, and white clover. And perhaps, perhaps specialist mixtures for cutting based on on red clover, and perhaps even lucerne in some places. I, I certainly know one farmer who's had a go at lucerne. Um, lucerne may be more in a more as a drought tolerant uh, crop as well. Is that? Well, it's it's a bit it's an alternative to red clover um, because it's definitely because it grows from a crown like red clover. It's it's more suited for a cutting management than for grazing management. Um, uh, but the the problem with lucerne is that it's you know the climate is fine in Scotland for for growing lucerne. I grew. <laughs> a couple of pots of lucerne in my garden at 530 feet above sea level in Aberdeenshire. Okay. Um, so the climate is okay in Scotland, but it's it needs uh, it's the soil conditions. It needs a well-drained soil with a relatively high pH. If you, and, and most soils in Scotland are relatively acid soils. Um, but it's worth trying if if you have well-drained soils with with good pH to depth. Yeah, yeah. If it's if it's uh, yeah, if it's a lay which is in an arable rotation, maybe that's maybe the place or something like that potentially. If you're liming anyway, uh, significantly for you know for barley and the rest of it. Um, yeah. Yes. Okay. Just coming back to the multi-species stuff, be briefly. Do you think maybe there's a risk if people are sowing very diverse mixtures and then you either cut it or you graze it that you might just by the management select out a certain group of species and end up with a less kind of diverse. Um, mixture. Yes, that's what will happen. Uh, over three, four, five years, you'll eventually uh, come down to three or four species in the, in this ward. I think. I think. Right. Okay. Coming back to a kind of technical perspective, um, what do you see the main the main challenges are in organic systems, just from a management perspective? <laughs> Well, it depends on what, what type of farm you've got. I mean, in the in the arable situation, the, the main uh, by that I mean uh, the, the the mixed farm situation where you've got short term lays and arable crops. I mean, these that type of farm is relatively simple to convert to organic. The main problem I would say would be docks in uh, in grassland. Docks and couch and uh, perhaps creeping thistle, but otherwise it's it's relatively simple to, um, you know, to to farm organically with a mixed farming system on, on low ground. Yeah. Um. In in the uplands and hills situation, 
the, the problems, uh, well, obviously, in, in any uh, longer term uh, grassland docks will continue to be a problem, and especially in the upland situation, because that's where you're forced, more or less, to cut the same fields year after year, because you've got a relatively small area of uh, cuttable ground. And it's it's in the situation where you're cutting the same field year after year, that's where docks proliferate. Um, in the low ground situation, you've got maybe got the opportunity to alternate between cutting and grazing, and that's the ideal situation to minimize the development of docks in the, in the grass. But in the upland and hill situation, you haven't got that uh, that luxury. The other problem in the in the upland, where, where you're forced to cut the same field all the time, is that you're mining it for potassium all the time. So, in that sort of situation, you need to be, um, I would suggest, um, <clears throat> doing soil analysis on a pretty regular basis. By that, I mean every two or three years, uh, so that you've got proof to go to the certification body and show that the potassium status of the soil is, is dropping and that you should be allowed to, to get a derogation to, to use uh, potassium uh, fertilizer. The other, the other problem in, in the, the upland and hill situation um, is possibly um, difficult parasite uh, problems. You know, ideally, what you would be wanting to do, to do is to have a both sheep and cattle on the farm and, and alternate between sheep and cattle on the same bit of ground uh, as a clean grazing system. Um, but very often, you know, certain farms lend themselves only to sheep. Um, and uh, that means that you're more likely to have a, a parasite problem, and that's where you know, regular faecal egg counting and and uh, and so on uh, would, would come in. Yeah, okay, okay. So mixed systems, like you say, are, are you know, relatively easy to convert to an organic system. It's, it's kind of very traditional. Um, there's a bit of a kind of conflict where people, or maybe people outside farming to some extent, view organic farming as a, as a positive for the environment, for climate change and carbon, but they then view um, ruminants as a, you know, and livestock as a whole as, as a negative. Do you think it's possible to have a, a reasonably sustainable arable system without some livestock input coming into it? Well, that's a very good question. <laughs> my, my my former colleagues at uh, SEC at Crapeston, or SRUC as it is now, um, have been looking at this for the last 10 years, actually, um, because we've, at, at Crapeston, we've had a, a, a rotations, an organic rotations comparison going on for the last 25 or 30 years. And... Um, for the last 10 years, one of these rotations has been converted to uh, an arable-based system. So I, I don't have uh, detailed information on it. But essentially, uh, you know, you, the critical nutrient in any farming system is nitrogen. So you've got to find a way of generating nitrogen. And in organic farming, the generation of nitrogen comes from legumes. Uh, in um, mixed farming systems, clearly you've got a grass lay, 
you've got ruminant livestock, so you know the, the nitrogen is being generated in the soil during the, the grass lay phase, and you've also got dung as well. In, a, in an arable-based system, um, you still need legumes. So um, you may get away with one year of a green manure, such as red clover, for example, which is probably the best green manure uh, for one year, possibly. And it, but, but you would need another uh, legume as well. And I think my colleagues at, uh, at Aberdeen are, have been using beans. I think beans, are pro as a grain legume, have been the, um, the most reliable grain legume. Um, so you, you certainly need at least two years uh, of, in the rotation, you need two out of six, I would say, at least uh, legumes in, in, those, uh, in that rotation, um, as well as using winter cover crops to minimize the leaching of nitrogen out of the system uh, and this, this kind of thing. The, 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 as well as maintaining a supply of nitrogen, the other issue with arable-based systems is uh, avoiding a buildup of weeds. And we've shown from that trial over this 20 years, 20 odd years, even before we introduced the arable-based system, that the more arable crops in the rotation, the bigger the buildup of weeds in the weed seed bank. Uh, for example, we were originally comparing, um, if I remember rightly, um, rotations with four years out of six as with a, with a grass lay, three years out of six with a grass lay, and two years out of six with a grass lay. The, the, the other uh, crop, the other uh, phases in the rotation being, being arable crops. And you could see over time that uh, the more arable crops were in the rotation, uh, the, the, the bigger the buildup of weed seeds in the seed bank in the soil. And that is something to, uh, to bear in mind uh, as well. I think, uh, just going back to the nitrogen supply, uh, I think an arable-based system uh, would be more um, easier to maintain if there's a reasonable uh, organic matter content in the soil. So, you know, a, a sandy soil with a low organic matter content, I think would be quite difficult to maintain an arable-based system over a, a lengthy period of time. So the better the soil, uh, the easier it would be in, in terms of uh, cation exchange capacity, the, the silt and clay content in the soil and so on. Uh, the, the, and, and the higher the organic matter content up to a point, uh, the easier it would be to maintain an arable-based system. Okay, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, very interesting. Just something I, I think about too. And the other thing which I sometimes think about is, again, no-till no or min-till is, again, very prominent when people talk about soil health. And how that interacts with organic always interests me because you're, you're, in these systems, you're quite reliant on glyphosate generally or some kind of herbicide to kind of um, burn off what's um, 
burn off the previous crop or any weeds before you before you sow. Um, have you ever done anything with that no-till or min-till in, in organic systems or seen it, David? Yes, this is something I've been I was really interested in uh, before I retired as well. And we did actually uh, get involved with with this a little bit. Um, we were using um, a drill called the Hunter Strip Seeder, which is a rotavator-based drill, which is not used at all now. It was actually developed for reseeding hill ground, so it's it's based. It's got a series of uh, rotavator units, bladed rotavator units. Uh, and it takes out a strip, maybe two inches wide, to sow the seed into. And it, and within that strip, it produces a very nice tilth for sowing seed. So uh, we used, what I was really interested in was um, seeing if we could develop a system of continuous cropping of cereals essentially on a permanent understory of white clover. Okay. Yeah. So we established a white clover uh, understory, pure white clover. This was done at Crabston. And sowed uh, spring cereals into it and winter cereals into this with no herbicide at all. Um, and we found pretty, out pretty quickly that this didn't work at all in spring cereals simply because the clover came away far too quickly, you know, uh, and competed out the, the cereals, the, the, the barley. Uh, so it was hopeless in, with spring cereals, but it worked very well with winter cereal. We used winter wheat, um, and we got pretty good yields, actually. I mean, yields of five to five and a half, six tons per hectare okay, of winter yeah. wheat. Uh, for and we we did this on the same bit of ground for I can't remember whether it was two or three years, but after two or three years, you could see uh, an increase in grass weeds developing, um, even although the yields of cereals were, were still quite good. There's no question that things like Timothy were, were starting to, even although this hadn't been sown in the first place, um, you know, the amount of grass weed. So clearly it wasn't going to be possible to um, to develop this as a, as a long-term system. But what I concluded from it was that you could do this for a couple of years. You could grow winter wheat one year in the first year and maybe winter oats the second year and then go back into plowing. You know, um, but I know that uh, other people are interested in this, and uh, I did listen to one very interesting German farmer talking about it uh, at, a, at a, an event down in Wiltshire on a farm in Wiltshire. Okay. And he has developed a, 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 a drill. Um, uh, for. Uh, basically minimum tillage of cereals. Unfortunately, this is not going to be work. Uh, this is not going to work in Scotland because his farm is in the south of Germany. He harvests his winter wheat or winter cereals in the middle of July, 
early July possibly. The system he uses is based on uh, very shallow cultivation from harvest time through until the middle, the middle of September. Uh, so that constant, very shallow cultivation at one centimetre depth with an A blade, I think it is, um, encourages the weed seeds to germinate and then are destroyed by the subsequent cultivation. Unfortunately, in Scotland, we don't have the luxury of a long growing season and we're harvesting cereals in August at the earliest. And so I, I suspect it won't, I mean, we haven't tried it. I suspect it won't work, but uh, you know, it's something that we should continue to, to look at, I think. Um, yeah, I think. Uh, having said that, this this uh, system that Feedback Vents has developed is not necessarily low carbon because it involves several passes with with this big uh, cultivator drill. You know, I certainly think that uh, we should be looking at um, using understories of of clover um, and trying to. Uh, trying to see if we can find some way of, of growing cereals, at least, in, in that understory. Yeah, of course. Yeah, because the clover is not only affixing nitrogen, but to some extent it's providing a nice mat to hopefully depress any, hopefully, annual weeds which we might crop up as well. That, that kind of system, I mean, even if it's, you know, having the amount of plowing in a rotation or, or cutting it to a third, I think that's, that can certainly still be an advantage in some situations. So it's... Uh, yeah, and it is a complex thing, like you say. That that system, he might not be using any herbicides, of course, but then he's maybe making two or three passes with the cultivator, which you wouldn't otherwise. So the kind of, if you look slightly past organic and just kind of think about low carbon and low soil disturbance, sometimes maybe one single pass of a herbicide is uh, is going to be better than um, than having to do multiple passes with a cultivator too. So it's a uh, it's a complex complex um, situation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, organic farming certainly has a, has a place in um, developing low-carbon uh, agriculture. It's not perfect for sure. Uh, you know, we need to find ways of doing away with, uh, with flame weeding, for example, and, and multiple uh, cultivation passes for, for weed control and, and things like this. Um, but... Uh, you know, there's there's plenty of potential uh, to to minimise, um, you know, the greenhouse gas emissions um, in, in organic farming. Yeah, definitely. And maybe, like we say, all arable organic might have its challenges. That can, uh, to some extent, maybe that leads you back to it's, it's just sensible to have a, a mixed system for, a, you know, a, well, I hesitate to say the word sustainable because it's bandied about a lot and means a lot of different things. But, you know, a, a relatively low input uh, system over a number of years, maybe a mixed system is just the natural the natural place you keep coming back to. Um, but, yes, and, and the, the thing that you've got to remember also is that, um, you know, in a mixed system, where you've even, you know, where you've got uh, ruminant livestock, they may be emitting uh, methane and, and so on, other uh, greenhouse gases, but there's also a lot of carbon sequestration going on in the, during the grass phase. Um, so, and, and if we can refine our... Uh, livestock systems and, and trying to get uh, reduced methane from from the the ruminants as well as um, 
improving the sequestration and minimizing the, the nitrogen loss from the system uh, during the plowing phase and, and over winter and so on, using winter cover crops. I think uh, we could refine it and, and, and uh, develop a, a pretty good uh, zero carbon system. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, if you very, very quick look at, uh, rather than uh, sackler beef and sheep, if you say looked at a, a dairy system with some arable in the rotation as well, you know, once you get, if you take the, the beef from the dairy calves as a byproduct and the milk kind of protein and then your cereal and potato harvest or whatever, the whole integrated system, I think, would be quite sustainable. Um and you'd still get quite a low carbon footprint per kilo of output as well, you know. And you'd, you you wouldn't have to buy in much inputs or take in much external inputs at all. Um, so greater integration all around might be uh, might be a, a benefit both in in cereals and beef and sheep and and dairy as well. Um, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, I think there's great scope for. Uh, you know, moving to a dairy system where uh, the cows are are uh, designed to produce good beef animals as well as as milk, um, and and to have the dairy cows uh, to increase their longevity, um, because if you can uh, if you can if they can have you know five six seven lactation instead of instead of two or three, then you know, you, you can have fewer heifers in the system and the heifers are uh, are basically producing methane but not producing uh, anything useful in terms of milk. Um, so, um, you know, if we can adjust the dairy system in that way, as some, as some people are, uh, that would also go some way towards uh, a zero carbon system. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. And then if you, if you come back to that, says, you know, a kind of model farm like that then you may just have to plant a small area of woodland or something to that extent and you could be you know you, i think you could quite quickly get to net zero um or account for woodland plants somewhere else or something something to that effect um yeah. yes i mean in in the arable situation um alley cropping is something that um that might come in a bit more in in future i know two farms in in this in, the, in england that are doing alley cropping on arable land essentially you know they're growing trees in 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 rows uh, maybe five six meters wide trees uh, with arable crops growing in between the, the the strips of trees maybe 40 40 meters 30 40 meters of arable crops and uh, the, the trees are being used either you know as as fruit crops or for biomass um and uh, that might be a, a way forward on on arable uh, farms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you wouldn't be taking that much away from. Um, I'm sure somebody's done the research. Um, but I suppose you aren't taking that much crop area away. But then, as the trees grow up, you're creating a bit of a lot of biomass above ground and above the crop, and you should get a net a net gain. I'd imagine. Yeah. yeah. That's right. We'll try and wrap it up then. I think. Um, do you want any closing points or anything, David, or I just say, kind of say thanks and bring it to a close? Not really. I, I would just say that, um, you know, during my career, I met a lot of really interesting farmers. I enjoyed my time speaking to farmers um, and still meet them occasionally. Um, so, uh, as well as tremendous SEC colleagues. 
Um, so I really enjoyed myself, my, myself uh, as an organic farming consultant. Good stuff. Good stuff. That's really cool. Okay, with that, I think um, thank you, thank you for your time, David. It's uh, been very interesting. Um, you know, a great, great breadth of knowledge and experience there to kind of get an insight into, and uh, we covered a fair few topics. And I think it's all all very relevant and interesting stuff. So uh, yeah, thank you again for uh, giving up your time to speak to us. Cheers. You're welcome, Malcolm.